Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we've got Todd Bulo, Daniel De La Cruz, and Ben Gilman, um, all partners, founders, if you will, of Dual Boot Partners here in Charlotte. Um, we recorded this podcast, as we've done so many of them, down at, um, down at Packard Place in their podcast recording studio. Great facility. Um, thanks, Dan, as always, for your support. Um, today's podcast was really talking about you know what Dual Boot is doing in the entre- or in the startup entrepreneurship space here in Charlotte um, and beyond. Realistically, right? I mean, they work with um, they work with founders across the southeast and I guess technically speaking across the country. So, really, you know, now that they're a full year plus into their existence and they're so. Um, ingrained into the community here the startup community here in charlotte just wanted to sit down and talk to them what they do how they do it why they do it um the impact is having where they see it going in the future etc so um really good podcast as we get kind of into it a little bit we get all three and you can kind of tell the um the energy in the room picks up about I don't know, about 20 minutes into it. Not that the first 20 minutes are boring by any, by any, um, any measurement, but um, the energy just kind of continues to pick up as we go through it. And that just, I think that's just a, um, a reality of the three of them and the energy that they continue to, um, to push into the startup community here in Charlotte and across the Southeast. So really solid interview. Hopefully you enjoy um, this episode with Dual Boot Partners, and stay tuned. Our um, episode after this will be with Derek Wang from Stratified. Um, we'll release that as we move into the new year of 2020. So, thanks again for listening to another episode of the Charlotte Angel Connection. All right, Dual Boot, welcome to the show today. Certainly glad to finally have y'all on the podcast. Um, as I've as I've mentioned to you previously, I, I typically start off with a softball question, but since we've got three of you on the podcast, I imagine we'll run long regardless. So I'm going to skip it this time. Um, you're, um, you know, you're all talented folks. You come from diverse backgrounds with super impressive contacts. You're always out there in social media, everything else. I think everybody in town knows who you are. Um, why are you working with startups in Charlotte? Or I guess now it's just the Southeast, right? Um, but why startups here? Yeah, so we actually we work with startups really all over the country, uh, primarily focused in the Southeast just because of the kind of regional nature of it. But in general, like we find startups exciting. Like they're building new stuff, they got new ideas, they're kind of on the cutting edge usually of technology. Um, and we also can make impact quickly. So we can typically help a startup come to market with some with a product in anywhere from like four to six months. And we have a playbook for how to do that. So as people come to us with their ideas, we have a good sense for exactly how to move them to a point where they can start to get uh, market validation on their ideas. Okay. Um, so until we get um, until we get comfortable with voices here in a couple minutes. Um, so we've got Ben, Daniel, Todd. Ben just answered our first question here. So. Um, what um 
So in working with startups, what does Dual Boot do? How do you, what's, you've got a playbook, right? Yeah, so, so we will help a startup basically go from concept all the way through market validation of that idea and then beyond that as well, so like iteration beyond. So a lot of times startups will come to us in any number of uh, positions. They'll come to us, either they have an idea and they, we will help them to vet that idea and validate the market viability of it. Sometimes they come to us with just a list of contacts. So they maybe it's somebody who has a lot of experience in the real estate industry and they're like, hey, I, I know I want to do something in software, kind of have these ideas, and I have a lot of contacts here. We will help them to vet those ideas and be like, this idea A, don't worry about that one. Idea B, let's, let's focus on that. And let's figure out how do we leverage your existing contacts to help you bring that to market and, and create a viable business around it. How do you create a pricing structure around that? Pricing structure for the business or for yeah for the dual business you no know, for the business for the for the business that's hiring y'all to do that if, um, is each one a custom pricing structure um, is it kind of a standard playbook how does it work it, it's basically a standard playbook and because we know that we try to get our customers to market in somewhere between four to six months we've already time boxed like how long this is going to take and if a customer comes to us and they have scope that's like. 12 months worth of scope, we will help them refine that down to four to six months. Okay. Because they should only be building the most important, the highest value proposition that they have and test that. Because a lot of times what will happen is they get to market and then they realize that, oh, the value that I thought we had, we don't actually have. It's actually something different or yeah. we need to change how we talk about it or we need to change our pricing structure. But you can only validate those ideas after you've had feedback from an actual customer. So are you business advisors or software builders? We are software builders at the core, but in order to help our customers be successful, and because we see so many businesses, we do give a lot of business advice. Um, is it as much, is it growing into being as much business as it is software? Uh, I will I'll answer that in a different way. Fair enough. We can build the greatest software product on the planet, yeah. but if it is not priced right, and it is not marketed right, and it is not sold right, it will not work yeah. as a business. Yeah, and I think for me... So I, Todd, we got Todd Vula yeah, here now speaking. So I learned that early on when we helped launch a company in 99, where we spent all of our money on building the product, and we ended up eventually selling that company, and when we sold it, I got to see our competitors' products, and I realized... We had a better product, but they outsold us. So I think that's, when you talk about business or technology or what are you, I think that's where a lot of our expertise comes in. Because there'll be people we'll meet with and we'll be like, hey, this sounds like a great idea, but don't even try to launch it until you've sold 10 of whatever it is. Yeah. And people often are like, well, I can't do that. If you're an entrepreneur, you should be able to sell anything without even having the product. Yeah. That, those are the ones that we usually see that are most successful, is they've sold a product. Because the last thing we want you to do is go and leverage all your 401k, go leverage all your family's wealth to build something, and there's no one there. That doesn't look good for anyone. So, um, so on that, how many times will y'all end up saying no? Um, to a potential entrepreneur that comes to you with a concept or an idea or book or book, do you say no often? Um, or um, is it more about helping pe people pivot around the initial concept to getting to something that now is worth running the game with? Yeah, so this is Daniel. Um, I think 
the, the answer we give is not no. It's like start trying to validate your idea. So if, if there's something that we don't feel comfortable with, it's like, well, who's your first customer? Have you talked to your first customer? Start getting that validation early and start having like the market start validating it versus, you know, my personal opinion is one thing, but go to your customers you want to sell to and get the feedback from them. I think that's more meaningful, if, especially if we're not the buyer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so speaking of the customer and kind of all over the country and everything else, I just found this out. I love the concept. Um, where are your offices? So we have uh, our U.S.-based team is largely remote. We do have an office in Davidson, um, and we have uh, remote offices. We have an office in Russia, and we have an office in Uruguay. Okay. Um, how does the remote here in the U.S. work? How do y'all, you know, have y'all been able to piece that? Because you're a startup yourself, right? You're two years in, um, almost. Yep. Um, so how do you end with how many employees? So we have seven folks here in the U.S., and we have over 50 developers. Okay. So how do you work remotely with 50 folks? Yeah. So uh, first off is we have a lot of experience. Yeah. So we've been working with remote teams for more than 15 years. Okay. So it's kind of a learned skill at this point. Um, we have really good processes and that are really tight around like communication and management and playbooks and things like that for how, to, how do you actually bring a product to market inside of a remote remote environment. Um, I think a, the mistake that a lot of people make when they when they think remote is they think like, oh, it's like disconnected. And there's really, there's nothing disconnected about this, right? It doesn't matter if we are, if, I, if I'm here and, and Packer Place and Daniel's in South Park, like that is just as far away as being on the other side of the world from a digital like working perspective. Yep. Um, so, and then we make uh, frequent trips to all of our offices. So like we actually get quite a bit of FaceTime with our with everybody on our team. Yeah, with our clients and our develop development yeah. team. Yeah, and I guess I would add too, for our US-based team, we want to spend our time with our customers, right? So like by being remote, it actually gives us more ability to spend more time with our customers um, and be in the field at different events and meeting people and meeting our customers. And yeah, I would say just to add on to that, I think we do three things really well and consistently, and I think these three things are really important to be able to run like these, you know, remote teams, whether they're ran remotely in the United States or remotely overseas. And like the first one is you've got to have a team that's like great communicators. Like we've got to be able to show up in our client's office, and we've got to be able to show up in our delivery offices and start building those relationships and those communication patterns and having like very consistent communication prep patterns on every single engagement. Um, the second thing is like we have like very senior resources. Like both our developers are all very senior. We don't hire junior developers, and like our U.S. base, like team leadership is very senior, and we've all been doing this for many years. Um, and I forget the third one. It was not important, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think one of the things that we're really good is kind of being a turnkey solution um, because of the experience we've had. Again, people have run the gamut with offshore, nearshore, onshore, whatever whatever you are, but the biggest challenge as an entrepreneur is you need to be focusing on your business, on the sales and marketing component, and not having to be worried about your product. Often we'll get entrepreneurs that will come to us and be like, hey, I went and built this with whoever, and I'm having to be on daily standups, I'm having to worry about the system crashing constantly. We eliminate that issue. Um, and I think that should be any team you're working with. Like, turn the keys over. I don't want to have to worry about this product. I want you as the entrepreneur to go sell. If you sell, 
good things are going to happen. If you don't sell, bad things are going to happen. Um, talk a little bit about how an old, um, so um, I told you earlier I had a, a company that I built, uh, or software I built in 2012, um, ran it from 2012 to 2015, shut it down, hired a company out of Raleigh, little did I know that they'd hired a team out of India to, to run it, and there are all kinds of communication breakdown and, um, and, and everything, and they were, I don't know if they exist anymore anyways, how does a, a, a correct onshore, offshore platform like Dual Boot work? Um, how do you make it successful for y'all and ultimately at the end of the day for the startups, right? What should folks expect when they're working with you? I mean, from from the entrepreneur side, we're always there. I think that's the, the big missing piece when people go to offshore that they think is that and I've, I've had this experience working with other teams, like 5, you know, 10 a.m., they're gone. With us, it's Ben and Daniel doing a great job of building the culture of what is expected of an entrepreneur and going and, and translating that to our delivery offices. So they, I mean, I can't tell you how many times they're, they're helping customers on Saturdays, on Sundays. And that is not the norm for a lot of countries. And so it's Ben and Daniel doing a great job of building the culture at these places. Ben can talk about the operational side of it. But as an entrepreneur, I want to know that if at 10 p.m. I have an issue that said there's someone there and we can provide that. Um, and like I said, Ben and Daniel have created the culture or the delivery offices to be like, yeah, 10 p.m., something's wrong. We're going to be there to help. Yeah. And I think that is like door number three I was like trying to get at. It was like it's good communication. It's senior resources. But it's like building these like healthy relationships and being able to show up in person and meeting getting to know our clients and really like building that trust that we can deliver, trust that we can be contacted when needed. We're not on the other side of the world. We're in their office all the time. Um, I think building that trust is really important. Turns out door number three was important. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, that's good. Door number three is oftentimes important, right? <laughs> you can't just end with the second door. Um, how the three of y'all meet? Yeah, so we uh, we've worked together in the past. Um, we worked at a, a company similar to Dualboot, um, and so we have a lot of experience doing this. And so I think the interesting thing about the three of us, kind of as partners in Dualboot, is that we all have expertise in different things. And so I've started several companies. Um, it tends to be the most successful ones. The founders of the companies have expertise in different areas. Very little overlap in terms of what we do. So my background is um, like CTO, executive technology. I was a developer, um, moved through the management ranks, CTO, and then kind of CTO and founding a couple different companies. Um, Daniel. Yeah, can give I, his background. I can do it's my very background. impressive. Um, so I guess I cut my teeth at PwC. I did the CPA thing for a few years. I switched into their advisory consulting practice. It gave me a really good exposure to a bunch of different types of companies, their processes, and really like what good looks like, and like being able to have that context from working with a bunch of different clients, like understanding what good looks like. It also gave me a really good exposure to like how a well-run service company works, and like we are a service business. Um, after PwC, I ultimately landed at like where I met Ben and Todd, um, and ran like the finance and operations of that company. Um, you know that we had about 100 and 120 people so like that was really good backdrop for me um, you know at dual boot I'm still doing like the finance operations I lean a lot on my I guess project management and like exposure that I had at PwC and that's um, been a good experience yeah and then where I step in is I'm more the extrovert on the connector yeah so Ben and Daniel like the one-on-one -on -one connections which are great but I like to get out and socialize and 
and really, you know, blend the business side with the nonprofit world as well. Um, and they've been very supportive of that. Because um, I think you can do both in the same um, and really take business and really change the world, not just for your business, but for other people. So um, I think to, to Ben and Daniel's point, like we all have different skill sets. Um, I'm an extrovert, I would say. Ben is an introvert extrovert, and we haven't yet classified Dan. <laughs> Unclassified. Um, but door it, it, three. It, it really does yeah. work out well because you know I like I like getting out. They don't. I am not good at getting into the details. They're very good at the details. So yeah. it, 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 you're able to balance all of those. And I think like having those like divisions of labor is really important. Like you need the business development person to be focused on developing business, and you need somebody that's focused on the operations. Like that's two different roles. And when you start muddying the waters, like you know plates get dropped. How much do you learn from your startups? Um, and I'll clarify that statement, right? I oftentimes tell clients um, that I work with that I learn as much, if not more, from them than they learn from me. Um, what's, what's the role about running lean companies and everything else, um, scaling that you're seeing working with, with those startup companies, how does that transition back to your own company? Do you find yourself picking up tidbits of information from time to time to them or from them? Yeah, I think, Ben, maybe you can start too. I think pet screening has been one that we've learned a lot on the sales and marketing approach. John Bradford, who runs that, does an amazing job on the sales and marketing approach. So maybe you can touch touch on that. Sure. So uh, pet screening is an interesting example. It's an example where... Um, so John Bradford and myself started pet screening. It was an idea that he had. He was he had great industry contacts in the real estate industry, and he had three or four problems that he was like, "Oh, we can solve one of these problems," and like I think we can do software to do it. And you know, from his perspective, like software, it, or create valuable companies basically. So we vetted those ideas, came up with the actual pet screening idea as both the probably the easiest to implement and the place where there was no competition. Like, nobody was doing this yet. And for anyone who doesn't know what pet screening does, it basically screens pets and assistance animals. Think of, like, your comfort turkey that you saw on the Delta flight. Uh, <laughs> it helps property managers screen these uh, these pets and animals to determine, like, A, if all their vaccinations and things like that are up to date, but B, do they actually meet the requirements for, like, an emotional support animal or a service animal. Um, so. What we did that was very interesting there is so John was 100% entirely focused on sales and marketing, and I was 100% entirely focused on product and technology. Like, there was very little overlap other than, like, exactly the thing that we were going to build was basically the only overlap. Um, and it, we've operated the company that way for three years now. Uh, it's a very successful startup in the Charlotte area. And it is successful because of that focus, because John is totally focused on sales and marketing. So like now we have, I think, I think we have 17 sales and marketing people. And so those folks are just out like generating business. And we have seven on the development team, um, of which Dualboot provides the entire development team. Uh, and we are just doing like ongoing like product enhancements. Um, yeah, so he's he he has shown us many times about how to promote the brand. You know, I don't know if you follow him on LinkedIn or not. He's really, does it does his woof, and he's he's got marbles coming down for sales. Like he's really good at promoting his brand. And I think we've learned a ton from him from from that aspect. Um, I think in general, you it, it's it's really interesting in our space because the entrepreneurs that you think are going to be very successful, 
don't often sometimes end up being successful and the ones you're like, huh, I don't know if that's a good idea, they end up taking off. But I think when it comes down to it, it's those that are focused on sales and marketing and get that are the ones that, and, and have the connections in that industry. Yeah. I mean, I think too often entrepreneurs come into an industry and they say, well, you know, I know this one because I read about it. Those are the ones that are harder to take off for this versus the person that's been an analyst, you know, at a financial bank for 10 years doing whatever the problem is, already has all the connections, and they're like, hey, let's go ahead and start this, this initiative now. Those are the ones, if they focus on sales and marketing, that tend to do really well. Yeah. I would, I would add one other thing that I've found over having done this several times now that is very important. It's the speed of decision-making. So as a startup, you are limited usually by the amount of cash that you have on hand. And so you can think of cash in terms of time. You can basically survive for a certain amount of time. Yep. The ability to make decisions quickly and to propel the company forward is critically important. And we see like marked differences between people who are quickly making decisions, even if the decisions are wrong, like quickly making that decision, figuring out that it's wrong and like readjusting versus like kind of hemming and hawing over like not sure what to do. You're way better off making the decision and even being wrong because you're not going to be wrong that many times, right? You're probably going to be wrong, right more than you're wrong and it allows you to move everything forward. Yeah. yeah. It's like get as many at bats as possible. A lot of times we see, you know, some of our, the unsuccessful cases we've seen is like, you know, they're so focused on that one at bat and like now if you strike out, you know, inning over, game over, yeah. you get as many at bats as you can and eventually, you know, you might get lucky. And like it's, you should be having do behaviors that extend the runway and like really um, give the, the business an opportunity. Yeah, if you start the if you start the game in the bottom of the ninth, put two outs. Well, it's a hard game to one play. One at right? bat, like yeah. that. So you want as many at bats as possible. So it's one thing I've read a lot of recently is the, um, you know, in the startup arena, um, trying to trying to direct by consensus ends up being a failure, right? Because it's hard to get consensus. You have to have that decision maker that's going to allow the business, to your point, to take more at bats rather than that one swing. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think um, delayed decisions are also something that implodes a culture yeah. as well. Uh, we've been in environments where, oh, we'll just do that later, but the later never comes because yeah. you're moving so fast. So to, to Ben's point, that quick reaction is, is key. Let's hop back to, uh, hop back to pet screen really quick because um, I didn't realize that so they've got seven developers that y'all essentially handle for them, right? So they've outsourced as they've continued to grow bigger and bigger. What, um, how big can how big or will they get and keep y'all in that capacity, right? Is that a forever engagement? Can dual boot serve as their kind of um, off-site, you know, technology team for 20 years, so to speak? Yeah, so dual boot is positioned to basically serve as the entire product and technology team for any kind of company. Um, I think there oftentimes comes a decision point for the company itself, whether they want to try and like bring some of that knowledge like in-house. Um, but I do think that as time goes on and that the kind of, and I'll use the word remote, but I mean geographically dispersed teams, whether that's onshore or offshore, whether that's US or non-US, whether that's like in the office work from home, as that becomes more and more normal, I suspect you will start to see more and more um, companies 
have kind of a core at the company, kind of internal, and then using these other service providers to provide um, whatever services they need. Because it provides a lot of flexibility and a lot of expertise. Like, it would be extremely difficult for us at pet screening and expensive to hire the same caliber team that we currently have through dual boot, like locally. Yeah. It would be almost impossible. And it's a distraction. Yeah. Like, then, like we were just talking about, need to be focused on sales and growing and not, you know, un- un- unfortunately in the U.S., like developer turnover is like a real thing and the labor market's incredibly tight in the U.S. So trying to find like talented developers, it's, you know, labor market in general is tight. The labor market in tech is, forget about it. And so trying to find like this development talent um, and it's hard, it's expensive, it takes time. And then once you get them, you know, the clock's ticking on when turnover is going to happen. So if you have a team of, you know, 10 developers and all of a sudden you've got um, 20 or 30% turnover, that means you basically need to be hiring a developer almost every quarter, which means the hiring machine never stops. Yeah. Oh, and then if you're growing, not only do you have to hire every quarter, if you're growing That's fast the same enough, size. Yeah, the same size. And then you get more than that. And then we see companies get pinned into the, to the, there's a developer I want, and then there's a developer we found. And that's not always the same person. And they, now they have to make a decision. Do they sacrifice quality for quantity? Yeah. My wife says that oftentimes too, right? So I was the, I was the one she found. But <laughs> It's like winning the lottery. Yes. Yeah, I, I think what's ironic about the whole tech startup scene and um, entrepreneur is that I think the model really needs to be more like building a home from the construction side. You hire a general contractor, that person you know, understands how to build, understands the engineering, but they don't hire their own electricians, they don't hire their own painters. For some reason, people have been slow to adopt that on the, on the startup space, and I think the reason why they're finally starting to adopt right now is ultimately, if you boil it down to, is, is there's not enough developers in the US right now. Right now, there's 500,000 open IT positions Take here in Charlotte right now, um, there's 4,000. I think NC Tech just came out with a study this month that said there's 30,000 open IT positions. There's not enough labor in this country. So people have to start looking at a different approach, um, which I think is a, you, you go find the best talent. And where that best talent might be in the U.S., it might be somewhere else. And that's what we do. We find the best talent. If the best talent's here in the U.S., we'll open an office here in the U.S. If the best talent's somewhere else, we'll do it somewhere else. So we're yeah. able to balance those two things. The tough thing, so on that front, and um, I'll let you argue against it for free, right? You know, um, uh, but is people see the general contractor and then they see the margin that the general contractor makes, and it's like, well, I just keep that margin myself and I'll do it myself, and therefore have more money to spend elsewhere. So what's the counter argument of that? We don't even have to make an argument. <laughs> be very clear about how it works. So that's the reason that the hybrid onshore-offshore model works. Like, we are less expensive than hiring your own team here. Like, less expensive, better quality. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, so there's people like Ben um, that can make a decision up front about your tech stack. That's going to save you a lot of uh, time down, down the road. So, you know, you take the mobile side. I've heard people go and build native iOS and Android. Um, and not to get too technical when they should have started with a Flutter React and now they're having to rewrite their entire platform. That's what that's the value someone like a Ben gives you to be able to make those decisions right up front and save you a lot of money down the road. Um, no, it's, you know, we were talking about earlier, my startup failed in 2000, or I failed my startup or whatever happened. Um, certainly decisions like that were decisions that helped lead to my demise. Um, but anyways, do... Um, 
do you work with, with mature companies as well? Or and I mean, I guess you'd almost started to qualify pet screening as a mature company. Yeah. Um, is it only startups, or no. how do you approach more mature companies from that perspective? Yes, yeah, so we, we is, do. Go ahead. Sorry. Now, as I say, is that a growing focus, or is the focus still mainly startups and the mature companies have a platform that they can kind of latch onto that y'all walk them through as well? So we do three different kinds of projects primarily. We okay. do early stage startups, so entrepreneur comes to us with no idea, like or an idea and but nothing built. We do. Um, what I call rescue missions. So this is typically a company that has started, that they have a piece of software that's been built over some number of years by a team that may or may not still be with the company. And they found some level of product market fit. So they might even be profitable, right? They're either like bleeding a little bit of cash, but their product is making money. And now they basically come to the point of view where they're like, okay, in order to grow for the next five or 10 years to position us well, we need to revamp, rebuild, replatform, do version two. So in those situations we come in, we will stabilize their existing system so that it continues to operate. It's typically like in some sort of fire state. Um, so we stabilize and then we will like rebuild basically for growth over the next five to 10 years. The third kind that we do is a straight replatform, and that's typically where we get into like larger companies. So these are companies that they have a stable product. Yeah. They, or maybe they don't have a product yet, but they want to build something like inside of a larger company. Um, we will come in and like build those products with the larger companies. I mean, we're even doing things like uh, Elevation Church, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with here in Charlotte. We actually just built their mobile platform, and now we're launching their Apple t TV app. Okay, cool. Um, so. I think those are, are, are good case studies where uh, Elevation's a rapidly growing company. They needed help, or a company, I say church, um, but... They, but big and huge they, online <laughs> footprint. Um, like, so big enterprise. You want to be one of Charlotte's best. So best to give you an example, their mobile platform right now gets over 312 million views uh, a year. So if you can imagine that, their their online presence is growing faster than their actual church. Wow. Their, their, um, you know, their main church. So. That's a big piece of their, their puzzle, but you know they're not going to go higher out that, so they brought us in to help out with that. So Yeah, and I would say we probably do like one-third, 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 one-third new projects, one-third rescue missions, one-third replatforms with bigger companies. Yeah. And they all, they all offer different kinds of challenges, right? There's different issues you have to address for each of those. Yeah. So... Um, for anybody in Charlotte that's on Twitter, LinkedIn, and probably Facebook, I don't know about Facebook, but I'm not on it, um, but LinkedIn and Twitter, y'all are extraordinarily active um, in the Southeast region, right? You're in Atlanta, you're in, um, you're in Raleigh, you're in Wilmington, you're in Charleston, you're certainly always here in Charlotte at the different events. Um, what... Um, what opportunities exist for the Southeast region to propel y'all forward over the course of the next five or 10 years? How do you see this marketplace? And we'll talk about Charlotte specifically in a second, but just the Southeast region, what presents itself well for the Southeast over the course of the next five or 10 years? Yeah, so I think to me, the most exciting thing about the Southeast in general is that it's growing. Like people are moving here. It's a, it's a reasonably wealthy area, especially if you look at like the bigger cities, Charlotte, like there, there's definitely money here for investment. Um, and as the, what would typically be considered like the 
tier one cities, like the New York cities, the Chicago's, the San Francisco's, as they get so expensive, it becomes very difficult for like an early stage entrepreneur to actually start a company there, right? And so as we build more of an ecosystem here in the Southeast, we will keep companies that have started here, we will keep them here as they grow. I think what's cool about the Southeast too is a lot of the people that made their wealth in New York and those areas in the Northeast are now moving down here. So. I know several angel investors that are in Charleston, um, up at Lake Norman. So the capital is coming down here just based on these people wanting to retire but still be involved in kind of the investment community. So that's what that's what really gets me excited about working in the Southeast right now. Just to, to Ben's point right now, this our city I think is the third third fastest growing city in the country right now. I mean, you walk down the streets, there's the, the, you know, the South End, you know, where Fat Burrito was the only restaurant over there. Now, Fat Burrito's gone, and you, you don't even recognize the South End from five years ago. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, what, um, when you're in Atlanta, when you're, um, let's just pick on Atlanta a little bit, because um, Charlotte always seems to compare herself to other places, whether it's Raleigh or whether it's Atlanta, right? So if you're in Atlanta, you're in Raleigh, you're getting ready to come back, or you're on your way back to Charlotte, um, what do you think about? What's missing? What's here that isn't there? What's the opportunity set for Charlotte as we move forward, as you all move forward, right? No, I think, I think we've done a really good job in this city of getting politics and business aligned. Um, you've got people like Tarek on the, on the city council side. I know he'll love the shout out there. Um, and working with people um, to align politics with the business component of it. Um, and I also, what I find really unique about Charlotte, um, a lot of my friends that are in the Bank of America, the Wells Fargo, they want to be in the startup world. So I think they're now investing in their time to help grow that. Um, the challenge with the startup world is they're not making the same paychecks as they were in the startup world. So what's cool about that is they end up often becoming the investors into these startups because they want to see them grow and, and create bigger opportunities here. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one thing we were missing before that is here now. Um, and we had a, a mayor a few a, a couple of years ago that really uh, uh, Dan that really really invested in it in the in the entrepreneurial space. And I, I think we're seeing the kind of the, the blessings of what he did you know, eight years ago, really take, take hold here in Charlotte. Um, I also think Charlotte's done a good job of kind of centralizing a lot of the activity. I mean, it's still dispersed, but a lot of it is happening in the South End and Uptown. When I go to Atlanta and, and to Raleigh, it's kind of spread out all over the place. Um, and I think with Raleigh in particular, it's really centralized around the universities. So you, you, know, you might be in Durham, you might be in Raleigh, but in Charlotte, you can come down pretty much one area and hit about 20 people in a day. Yeah. I think that, which is really nice. I guess that's true. In, in, in Raleigh, you're, you know, you're, you're in NC State, and then you're at Duke. Um, I mean, they're you know, 30 minutes apart in a, um, in a good day. Yeah. Um, and you know, in the afternoon, it's, you know, it's like five hours apart. Um, what's... Um, Stick here, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about startups and how you work with them a little bit more because I'm intrigued by it. Um, and we'll just kind of pivot in, in a lot a lot of that conversation and a bunch of my different missteps. Um, what's the vision for Dual Boot, right? What do y'all want to What do y'all want to be? Um, what do y'all want to be when you grow up in five years? Yeah. So, I, I, my personal perspective, like I love building stuff. So, like 
the clients that we work with give me personally a good opportunity to build interesting technologies and a lot of different technologies targeted at different businesses. Um, if you look at like my past and what I've done, that's basically what I've done my entire career. And so, yeah, I'll, I love building stuff. So I'll keep building stuff until yeah. I get tired of building stuff. And like, like our goal is to like grow and scale. Like, like we're talking a lot about the Southeast right now. In general, like the Southeast, like cities in the Southeast are like underserved secondary markets and they need help. Like there's, you know, a huge developer shortage and like we think, um, it's a good opportunity to partner with us and, and companies like us to, um, you know, create this entrepreneurial culture and startup scene. Um, yeah, it's definitely. I, I do also have a hypothesis that if we can help to fill the developer shortage, that will also increase the rate at which the Southeast is able to grow, right? Like sure. You will be able to, there will be more startups, there will be more technology coming out of these companies, there will just be more overall like business growth if we can help to address this problem. Do you see being an acquirer of other kind of smaller technology um, platforms in other cities across the southeast um, or you don't have to acquire based on the business model being the remote strategy at this point in time I don't think we need to require I guess we'd probably be opportunistic if we see something that's interesting we'd certainly you know we won't rule anything out you know back to the at bats conversation we, we're not you know we haven't fallen in love with any one idea but um, from like a scaling perspective I don't I don't know if that's necessarily in the books for us Opportunistic. Yeah. Um, and since you're a startup and startups are always talking about exits, we'll just have to bring it up anyways. Um, um, and Skookum sold recently as well, right? Um, do you sell out in two years or is this a, is this a business that y'all run for the next 10, 20 years? So, so getting back to your question about, you know, what do you like? Um, and and, I, and I, I'm the same as Ben as I, I like. I like helping people start up. I like seeing them be successful. But I think the kind of the neat thing that we do is we like investing as well. So I think we're creating a model that can last until we're 75, 80 years old, where we are always involved on the development side, but also on the investment side. So one of the unique things we have is we are seeing companies at an early stage before a lot of other VCs, private equity firms might even look at them. Um, and we're also working with the teams, so we can quickly vet out who's who's an interesting one and who's one you know, that might need some help. Um, so for 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 us, I think that's the other part of it is the, the investment side. So Skookum was straight services, right? Yeah. We we can do the services component, but we also can do an investment side of it, and we do that through a number of things with with the way we structure our rates. But then also we're we're investors in several private equity and VC firms, Task Force X being one of them, um, Idea Fund being another, and then uh, fintech Carolina fintech here as well. Um, and we're always looking at opportunities to do that because. In the grand scheme of things, we like to launch products. With products, you need money. If you don't have the money, uh, you can't always launch a product. And I think in Charlotte, there is a lot of money once you get to a certain amount of revenue, but it's hard to get the money to first start up. Um, and I think a lot of the entrepreneurs that I've seen that have been successful have had uh, a network that have allowed them. And I think that's one of the areas that we need to do a better job in, in, in Charlotte is helping people that don't have that initial startup network on the funding side, helping them to get launched. 
you know, we talk about upward mobility here in Charlotte. One of the things with upward mobility is to invest in those people that don't have, you know, all the family with all the money, you know, which is what Charlotte was known for. If you're part of the Belk family or the McCall family, it was easy to start. But if you're part of, uh, you know, the Bissett family, yeah, the yeah. Bissett exactly. family, <laughs> uh, or if you're in, you know, you're in West 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 Charlotte and, and you're not, you know, you didn't have the opportunity to, to, to be raised in a family yeah. with the means. We need to be able to get them the means. So that that's what excites me um, around what we do on the services and the investing side of it. But to date, to a certain extent, um, the city hasn't, um, and not to venture too far into politics and away from core kind of startup concept, um, the city hasn't embraced. Um, startups as a way to help in the upward mobility piece, right? Um, to an extent they have, but I think you're striking on an important tone, which is it can be, it just hasn't been embraced in that capacity yet. Exactly, and I think there are some, like Carolina FinTech is doing an interesting thing with their wind program. Yeah, they are. Place people. I think um, Red Ventures is doing something interesting. I mean, Red Ventures has had to create their own nonprofit because they couldn't find enough sales and development people. And I think they've done a wonderful job of investing in the people that are smart but may not have had the, the backgrounds you know, or the, the, the economic wealth to be able to, to go to a university and, and helping train their employer force. So I think it is a significant opportunity. Um, you know, we talk about it a lot, um, but I think it's something that is a missed opportunity right now here in Charlotte, yeah. upper mobility. I mean, again, in Charlotte, you've got 4,000 open IT positions right now. Think about that. You know, that's a lot of jobs that you could be placing people in immediately yeah absolutely um so to circle back around to kind of core concept of startups founders etc um so I, i'm a um i place a lot of thought in the fact that the next recession will be beneficial for the startup scene here in charlotte because we'll go through another round of layoffs um and layoff people sometimes end up starting new businesses right mm-hmm. um and I think we'll see that round of layoffs in the banks and other places as well. What do you tell somebody at the bank today to prepare to start launching a business over the course of the next couple of years? I mean, for me, what I tell them immediately is use your network. So when you're at the bank, you can get meetings with the people that you can't get with when you're at a startup. So build your Rolodex while you're in that important position at the bank. Go meet with the politicians. Go meet with the heads of execs. Because the minute you start up, do a startup, they'll stop calling you unless they know you before that. So from a networking standpoint, that's what I tell them always. Use your network now. Build your network. Get the contacts so that when you start your business, you're already off the run, the ground and running. Yeah, I think the other thing that we see that's, that's challenging for people coming out of like large enterprises is like you got to build like some kind of nest egg or something to support yourself because like the compensation will not be the same. Like yeah. at the end of the day, like you could you if you build a successful startup, like you could make a lot of money, a lot more money than you could make at the enterprise. But the road to get there is not straight and it is not smooth. So you need to have some cushion or at least some appetite for a. Uh, <laughs> For a lower quality of living, basically, and, and some of it—that's that, just from a money point of view. I think a lot of people who actually do this find that the quality of living improves in other ways, right? Yeah. Like there's you, people tend to have more purpose about it. They tend to feel like they are more empowered to like be the masters of their own destiny. So, it, it's a give and take, but you got to be prepared for that give and take. Yeah, I think like just piggybacking off of what Todd said um, earlier, it's like 
not only like leveraging and starting building your network, but also starting to really get and understand like the entrepreneur like ecosystem in Charlotte and understand like start understanding what does it mean to be an entrepreneur and start your own business because like, it's a lot different than working a desk job at a big bank where you have you know probably focus on that one at bat because in the risk profile and tolerance of a bank is much different than an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur has got to think completely differently. Um, I think we've probably seen, we've seen people be really successful transitioning from big companies to small companies, but I think we've also seen a lot of people struggle because the day-to-day of a small company is completely different, especially when you're running the show um, versus um, working at a large company with all these processes and, you know, um, years of a uh, built-up culture. Yeah, I, I think a lot of things on the, uh, for big corporations that's hard, people read all the success stories. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, assume whatever idea you're launching, you're going to do it for 10 years. If you can do it for 10 years, then you should do it. If you can't, if you think you're going to be out in three, don't do it. Yeah. Because um, often you hear when someone raises a money, right, raises money, that's they're already four years into the journey. Mm-hmm. But you think that's the startup. That's not the startup. You definitely got to be hungry. Yeah. Um, and I and I think the cool thing about Charlotte, you take you take. Um, I'll give you a good example. Priya from Stash Wealth. Yeah. She has done. An amazing job at a very short time meeting a lot of people. I don't think there's many cities in the country you can go that are so welcoming to people that are looking to do a startup and entrepreneur. I've, I've experienced, like, you know, I grew up in New York. It is not that case. Like, New York is, you've got to be born into that or you're, it's going to be very hard to get meetings. Down here, there's so many people coming from so many different areas yep. and so willing to help out. It is unbelievable. Um, and, and like I said, Priya is a good example. Um, Maggie at Skipper is yep. another good example. Um, Angel, maybe I'm mentioning all women. I don't know. Maybe there's a ma- male here, but maybe women. I'm, I'm biased to women. My, yeah. my wife's so Todd, you came from New York and you know everybody <laughs> yeah, now. <so. laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, building out the Rolodex, right? Um, how soon can they start talking about the concept? Um, to folks within the bank, uh, folks with outside. I mean, how soon, I mean, you, you said earlier, one of the first things you encourage them to do when they come to you with the concept is go sell it, right? Sell it to 10 different people. How do you sell the, con- how, do you, how do you test that marketplace as they're, um, as they're potentially exploring it over the course of the next couple of years? Yeah, so. In, and you don't have to give away all your trade secrets. No, no, there, there, yeah. there, the playbook's not that secret. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, but you you can put together um, like essentially like a vision of your design of your what you're gonna do right. Maybe it's a maybe it's wireframe. Maybe it's a cookable prototype. Like something like that. And it's not you don't actually have to write any software to do that. It's not terribly expensive to do it. You most people could who are looking at starting a company could probably afford to do this. Um, and then you can take that and you can start to show it to people and, and get an idea of like, are people interested in this? How much would they pay for it? Like, and if you're trying to sell to big companies, like what's the procurement process like? Uh, and you can start to answer some of those questions that if you have them answered, will greatly accelerate you once you actually go into this full time. Because like once you go into it full time, once you quit your, your job and you start doing this full time, you want to go as fast as you possibly can. 
No, that's a good point. Um, but you put together, so I'm a play devil's advocate, and yeah. I'm going to be the person sitting inside the bank. Um, you put together that wireframe or whatever it is, and you go present it to somebody, and the first person says you're stupid. Um, so. that, that, that would be fantastic advice. <laughs> so typically the advice is actually the other way around, which yeah. is like, that is a great idea. You yeah. should definitely do it. And it, they're just saying that so that they don't have to have the hard conversation. Like, I, if you went to the first person and they said this is a terrible idea, like, you should thank them. Be like, thank you. Can you explain why it's a terrible idea? Like, why do you think this is bad? Because you really need people who are going to be honest and who are going to, like, poke holes in your idea. Like, mm -hmm. taking it to your mom and asking her how it's going to do is, like, not going to give you yeah. great advice. Like nobody, like to Ben's point, many people do not want to call the baby ugly. And so, right, it's, you know, that hard conversation is up front is good. And like, I guess one of the things we'll challenge people is like, why do you need working software to sell this? Like, what, why can't you take this cl clickable prototype or this idea? If you're struggling to sell this clickable prototype or idea to your potential customers, why do you think having working software will change that conversation? Like, you know, help walk people through like what, What's the connection between the two? Um. Yeah, and I think Charlotte, with like things like Pitch Breakfast now, you can get up there with a clickable prototype and get feedback right away of, is this good or not? Or even just like a PowerPoint. Yeah, and, and the folks yeah. on those panels are like the people that will be investing in your your idea, so like they're gonna give you real feedback. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we all love Chris Halligan, right? He's gonna, he's gonna tell you if he likes it or not, he's gonna give you straight feedback. But that's what you want, to Ben's point. You don't want someone Oh, this is great. Go do it. Go quit. You know, like that's, and then you quit, and six months down the road, you're two hundred thousand dollars out without any revenue, and you're yeah. like, holy cow, what did I just do? Um, you blew two hundred thousand dollars. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And you don't. You even, got an MBA, yeah. right? You don't even have a car to show yeah. for it. You got a lot of experience, though. Yeah. And I guess the other thing that I would add there is like most people's first startups fail. Like, I did. Like, I don't know. Everybody else has probably did it too, right? Mine, like, yeah, mine did. Nobody I, really I talks have about it. software that failed. So. Yeah. <laughs> like, nobody really talks about it because, like, the people who are, like, really good entrepreneurs, they just keep doing it. Like, they're like, all right, the first one, like, oh, that's my education, right? That's my learning experience. I figured out, like, can't do this, can't do that, need to do this thing faster. And really, like, at least in my experience, like, you shouldn't count on these, like, being successful until, like, maybe, like, the second or third one or the fourth one or something. Because, like, by that time, like, you've learned all the stuff that you need to learn. And really, the acceleration, the ramp is so much faster, too. Because, like, as I look at the ones that I've done later in my career versus earlier, the later ones are so much faster. Like, the, the time to revenue, the time to product to market, the time to... Um, break-even revenue is like is much faster in the later ones than it is in the earlier ones. Yeah, and I, I think the other area people run into challenges is you got to be careful about who you're getting advice from. Um, I've no, I, I always try to get advice from people that are that experience rapid growth. That rapid growth could be within Bank of America or at a startup um, because those that have 2% growth every year, they don't always think about all the challenges that are there and they potentially are going to give you advice that is detrimental to your business plan. Um, and often, a lot of them at the, at the bigger corporations have a huge budget, so if they fail, it's not their family you know, net worth that has just gone. It's just another you know, write-off on a, on a, on a P&L. Somebody comes to you, someone comes to you by themselves, and it's kind of a follow-up off of this. Um, do you almost mandate them go find a co-founder? 
Um, I mean, you've got the three of y'all, right? Do you feel that co-founders are beneficial or can you kind of serve in that co-founder seat as well as the CTO just based on the business perspective? Do you not really have a preference? Co-founders are great. Single founders are, are, are fine as well. How do you view the finding team from that perspective? Does it have to be team or can it be I? So in general, we can serve as the technical co-founder and we've done that for several companies. So we will serve the same role that that technical co-founder, which will provide the advice, we'll sit on the management team, um, and then kind of the, the primary co-founder would be like the sales and marketing guy. In general, um, you sh I find that at least that it works better if you have m multiple founders. Like if it's a single founder, a true single founder, the chances that that person has all of the expertise that they need to, to run the business that they're gonna do, just take a software company, you need to have sales and marketing expertise, you need to have some level of product or customer engagement expertise, and you need to have the actual technical expertise to build it. Like, the chances that that's all wrapped up in one person is very slim. Yeah. And that one person's gonna be spread really thin, and you're not gonna be able, to, it's likely, unless you have a huge bankroll, you're not gonna be able to find like the senior level talent you need to pull it off without adding, especially in the U.S., right, without adding another co-founder. Yeah, and I, and I think, I guess my definition of the co-founder might be a little different in the sense that I think you need active either co-founders or active advisors um, because there's going to be moments in your, in your startup or your entrepreneurial journey where things don't go right. And one person's going to be super depressed, and it's always helpful if you've got that other person that's building you back up. And I think when you're single-threaded and you've got no support around you, that's where it can be a, not a, a good way to grow a company. Um, and I, 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 I've seen it personally um, you know, with my wife's company, Bella Tuna. There were years where we were not doing as well financially, but I didn't tell her. And that's when she ended up being her most creative and really the company started excelling. I think she would have been crippled if she knew a lot of the details. Um, so and that's where like a co-founder, you know, was husband and wife in that standpoint. But I think that's Maybe where- Maybe some marriage counseling time. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. yeah, like marriage counseling along the way. But I think, I think that's, you need someone there. You need your cheerleader along your journey yeah. that understands the depth of it. It's not the cheerleader like your mom and dad calling them. It's someone that's going along with the ride with you and celebrates and high-fives you on the wins, keeps you up when you're on the down, because on Monday you can have a win and Friday the business could be feeling like it's gonna implode. Yeah, I would say that's that's true of all, like kind of startups, it's a roller coaster, right? Like up and down, up and down, up and down, and like be prepared to like go through the emotional roller coaster of that up and down. Mm -hmm. How fast is technology changing startups? Um, I don't think it actually changes that fast, primarily because, like, as we look at startups, we talked about this a little before, is, like, the focus is sales and marketing. Like, the way you do your sales and marketing might be changing, but yeah. ultimately, you still need a network. You need to know your customer. You need to put your message in front of the customer. The actual product, sure, that, that's going to change, but, like, that's kind of, um, it, it's almost, it, while it's part of the business, if you can get the sales and marketing engine right, you can interchange the product out. I mean, that's kind of like that's the, like what Red Ventures has figured out, right? Like they can, they got the sales and marketing engine, right? They can do, they can swap the products in and out. I think it's really cool technology how you can accelerate a message now that you were not able to do even five or five years ago. I mean, the things you can do on LinkedIn now are unbelievable. But I, the, the scary thing is, 
if and especially in the services world, if you don't perform now, that message is accelerated as well. And that's what I tell everyone when they work with us. I said, if we do not do a good job, it's going to get around Charlotte so quickly. So we are, we have to do a good job, and we have to figure a way that it works out for both of us. Yeah. And I and I and I think that's where technology has really changed is the way that anyone can put a message on Facebook right now, anyone can do on Instagram, anyone can do LinkedIn, and and really hinder or hurt your business. That's a really good point. I guess if you're going to do a bad job, you need to need to move to New York City, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially like a city like Charlotte. Like at the end of the day, we're selling trust, right? It's not we don't sell software. We sell trust and partnership. And like like Todd saying, like if you if that trust fails, it's going to fail quickly, and it won't be with just one client. How long did it take you to realize that? I mean, that's any any. I think we understood that right on day one. Like we understood, like we knew our customer. We know we obviously working with a lot of entrepreneurs. We know that there's a ton of trust like vested with us um, to be able to bring their product to market or take you know their rescue mission and like and, and get it stable. Um, I think we knew that. And, Todd does such a good job of getting out in the community and starting to network and build that trust because it's not built in one day and it's not built by one LinkedIn post or something like that. Yeah, and I, I think for me it's been 20 years of life experiences. Um, you know, I, I had an instance one day where I was walking home and a car flipped over behind me and we ended up getting the person out. They were perfectly fine. And then on the media that night I read, hey, uh, life-threatening person near died in crash. And I'm like, that is not, like I literally was talking to them. And so it's it's those types of experiences over time um, have really brought me to to really try to understand people, try to figure them out, and don't always don't always take what you hear first first time. And that's like getting feedback what you hear the first time, like understanding that and, and and figuring out what's real and what's not. And especially that's one thing with entrepreneurs in this town that's a challenging. It's really hard to figure out who's real and who's not because you can spin a message any way you want. And I think that's some of the advice I give to people is like, be careful who you align yourself with because the ones shouting the most may not be the ones that you want to align yourself with. It's the people that are behind the scenes that aren't at a lot of the events that you want to try to get connected with. Um, and again, I bring it back to Angel at Sign Up Genius. Like when she was running that company and doing an amazing job, she wasn't at a lot of these events. Yeah. Now she's you know sold and exited and she's a great resource. But Angel's the one you wanted to connect with also you know, five to ten years, but she wasn't at this because she was focused heads down on helping build her company. No, you're absolutely right. Um, what's um, kind of end on this? Um, same point, and you mentioned it earlier, I think, Ben, or maybe it was you, Daniel. Um, Charlotte people don't talk about failures. Um, and I think you learn a lot from failures. Why isn't why isn't it a concept that's embraced in Charlotte? Everything has to be a success. Um, but as you said earlier, I mean, your first startup was a failure. Your second one, I can't remember if you said. You th- <laughs> okay, uh, your third, fourth, right? But your failure. I mean, what made your third and your fourth one more successful is your first one failed. Yeah. Um, and if people would just embrace and talk about what went wrong, it would help the entire community move from you know the first step to the you know step and a half or two step or why? Why? I mean, in San Francisco, I mean, someone shouted from rooftops. I you know a I was successful, but b I failed too, right? So why don't we talk about failure here? I- 
I don't know the answer to that question. I have a hypothesis. Um, I think that it's it's scary to talk about failure, right? Like, especially like if you're going to a startup event where we're trying to like the encouragement is like, yeah, we can do this, we can do this, let's do it, we raise money, and then the, the kind of Debbie Downer to be like, oh, and by the way, if this is your first one, probably not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I do think it it requires people in the community who have been successful to talk about the places where they were not successful. And it requires like moderators on panels to ask questions about that and to know that there are people willing to do it. We mentioned Chris Halligan. Chris Halligan talks about other screen and like why it failed. And it's super informative to hear why it failed because they had a great team and like they just didn't have great product market fit. And like there's not really much you can do to get around that. Um, yeah. But to understand that is is critically important. And I think it just takes um, just a willingness to like make that more acceptable and to say like hey, the the idea failed like the entrepreneur did not fail like it's a numbers game right yeah. it's like it's like investing in the stock market some days are up some days are down like you just have to have more up days than down at the end of the day do y'all have to work with entrepreneurs to help them know when they're failing yes yes it's hard because they have fallen in love with their baby and you try to talk them out of falling in love with their baby and yet they get further and further into debt and it gets it gets hard. That's where, like, Other Screen, I think, is a great case study in itself. Yes, it failed, but they ended up returning a lot of the investors' dollars back because they realized the business model wasn't working. And I think entrepreneurs own that to their investors. Like, yes, I'll take money, but if it's not working, there may be a point that, hey, I shouldn't just spend all your money. Yeah, I'll return it. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, too, I think it's not so much like, is it succeeding or is it failing? But say, like, are we on the right path? Should we adjust? And like, how quickly can we adjust? That's fair too, right? Because most ideas, like, most ideas aren't they're not bad ideas, right? They were they were started for a reason. Yeah. And there there's usually a way to like redirect those ideas, or to like, the catchphrase would be pivot, right? Yeah. Pivot to something that's like makes more sense. And a lot of times, it is easier for us to see that, having seen so many startups, and looking at it like not as emotionally attached as an entrepreneur is to say, hey, like maybe this pivot like makes more sense. And then having that conversation or repeated conversations kind of to, to walk through that, like how do we do this? How do we make it happen? And that's really like where our, our business advice comes in. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to bring it full circle. So um, I told you we keep it to an hour slightly under. Um, we're pushing up against that time today. Um, thanks for carving out the time uh, to come meet us here at Packer Place to talk about um, dual boot partners, what you've done so far, what you continue to do, how you see the Charlotte market, um, how you see businesses, startups, et cetera, et cetera. So um, really fun conversation. Certainly enjoyed it. Hope you all did as well. Um, and we'll see you on social media um, in the coming weeks. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey and Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey and Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey and Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51 
1 Line A under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.